national opinion polling on abortion has been incredibly constant for decades. And it consistently shows that a majority of voters did not want to see Roe overturned and don't want to see abortion access banned altogether. And so when you combine these early outcomes around abortion politics in the post-Dobbs world with that longstanding national polling data, it shows that moving nationally, Republicans moving nationally to ban abortion is a very fraught, politically risky move. Mm -hmm. I would be, again, things can change, but in the immediate, I would be surprised to see them trying to highlight abortion politics and trying to move against or move to regulating and banning abortion aggressively at the national level. The state level game is a different one. Welcome to Deep Dive with me, Sean C. Fettig. Following the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe in the Dobbs decision earlier this year, political elites and the media began speculating feverishly that the decision would upend the midterm elections, that abortion would take a front seat, eclipsing things like inflation and crime, things that the Republican Party heavily emphasized as the most important issue for voters, and that this would animate and energize Democrats in such a way that conventional wisdom, that Republicans being the out party in a midterm election, when the economy is struggling, the Democratic president's job approval is dismal, would flip Congress in a bloodbath for Democrats. On November 8th, Election Day, American voters did something relatively remarkable for a midterm election. We now know that Democrats will keep the Senate and perhaps even expand it by a seat, and that Republicans will narrowly take the House. This is a massive underperformance for Republicans. Along with a lot of other people, I'm interested in understanding what happened, and specifically how the Dobbs decision and the abortion question might have influenced this election, if at all. So my guest today is a former colleague of mine, Dr. Joshua Wilson. He's the professor and chair of the political science department at the University of Denver and associate editor of the Law and Policy Academic Journal. Dr. Wilson has written and published extensively about abortion politics and other things, including the books The New States of Abortion Politics, The Street Politics of Abortion, and most recently, Separate but Faithful, The Christian Right's Radical Struggle to Transform Law and Legal Culture, with co-author Amanda Hollis Brusky. His research has also been published in numerous academic journals and appeared in mass media outlets such as Newsweek, Christian Science Monitor, Washington Post, and Politico, to name just a few. We talk about how we got here on abortion in the United States, how anti-abortion activists manipulated the legal landscape on abortion issues over the decades in such a way that they primed an entirely new political debate that empowered Republicans and conservative religious folks to pursue strategies that culminated in a conservative majority on the Supreme Court that was able and willing to overturn Roe. We talk about how this all might have flipped the script for anti-abortion activists, changing the game from one of offense to one of defense, and what that might look like moving forward if the National Republican Party has an appetite for a nationwide abortion ban, how abortion politics might play out in future elections at both the national and state levels, and if the Dobbs decision cost Republicans what, by all accounts, should have been an overwhelming retaking of Congress. We also talk about the state of American politics, why we shouldn't be surprised by Republican acceptance, sometimes provocation, of political violence, and why Donald Trump leaving the political arena won't solve the problem. If you like this episode or any episode, please feel free to give it a like on your favorite podcast platform and or subscribe to the podcast on YouTube. And as always, if you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, please feel free to email me at deepdivewithshawn at gmail.com. Let's do a deep dive. Dr. Joshua Wilson, thanks for being here. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. No problem. I'm, I'm excited to have you here. So we're recording this interview on Friday, November 11th, at a time when the final midterm results for neither the House nor the Senate have been called, which is was unexpected. Mm-hmm. But it does look like Republicans may ultimately narrowly take the House, although that's not a foregone conclusion. And Democrats have a very real chance of holding the Senate and maybe even expanding control by one seat. 
And this is very much counter to the narrative that we've been sold on that midterms favor the out party. So in this case, that would be Republicans. And that inflation, gas prices, and crime being top issues for voters would benefit Republicans. And that just, against all odds, hasn't materialized. So I've asked you here to talk about why this is, what happened. And so a lot of factors have played into this. And I want to talk about them. But let's start with your bread and butter, abortion politics. So you've been studying the anti-abortion movement for quite a while. You've written numerous books and articles about it. And frankly, you're considered kind of a premier expert on this. In that vein, were you surprised by the Dobbs decision? Well, first, thanks thanks for the compliment. Uh, you can't see, but I'm blushing over here. But uh, <laughs> as far as the Dobbs decision is a tricky one in terms of it really matters of when you would have asked me. And so what I mean by that is for, for a long time, I thought that you know incrementalism was the way that the Republican Party and the way that anti-abortion activists moved ahead uh, and moved ahead both kind of constructively for their ends and also relatively safely politically. And so just to do a quick little definitional pause here. So incrementalism being uh, the idea that the overall strategy wasn't to go directly after abortion's legality by trying to pass some sort of uh, blanket ban. Mm -hmm. Rather, incrementalism was an erosion strategy, a chipping away strategy. And so you regulate around the margins and you continue to increase the costs of abortion or otherwise restrict access to abortion, incrementally creating more and more space to regulate so that you could eventually get to a point where a state could uh, almost functionally ban abortion without overtly doing so. And this had the, like I said, the combined benefits of it was effective, both in terms of Republican legislatures, conservative legislatures being able to pass these kinds of laws. But then more importantly, they had a fairly good track record of being upheld in the court. Um, so they could actually go into effect. And then the third one was, you know, they, they had effects on abortion access as well. So this seemed like a positive strategy that was paying off for quite a few years for anti-abortion activists. And it was a positive strategy for conservative legislative members because they could keep this issue that mobilized their voters in front of their voters and give them things that they wanted, while also moving incrementally, not necessarily upsetting their opponents, not creating a political backlash. So it was kind of a, for lack of a better term, kind of a sweet spot for conservatives and Republicans to be in. And then if we switch to the court side, the court also presumably faced a big risk of going after Roe directly as well. And so it was in the conservatives on the court's interests to continue this incremental strategy for the same exact reasons. It insulated them, but allowed progress on the issue and created more and more space for state legislators to act as they wanted to. And so my thinking for a long time was that the court would want to maintain this state because it benefited kind of all conservative actors involved. Mm-hmm. And I even felt that way. So then if you back up a little bit more too, the court case that I was looking at before Dobbs was the June Medical Services case, which was essentially a rehearing of the whole women's health versus Hellerstedt case that came out of Texas that was decided in 2016. And that case was, without getting into details here, it was basically repeating, it was a kind of a copycat piece of legislation uh, in Louisiana that was disputed in the June Medical Services case that very much followed the Texas law that the court largely shot down in Whole Woman's Health. And the reason why I was looking at that case was it gave us a good preview of how a newly constituted conservative majority Supreme Court respond to the first major anti-abortion case that it heard, and one that allowed it to move against Holman's Health, which was a remarkable pro-abortion ruling. But what came out of that was that Chief Justice John Roberts essentially changed his vote. He voted to in Holman's Health, uh, he voted with the state of Texas, with the abortion uh, regulation. But in June Medical Services, he said that he was essentially 
constrained by precedent, constrained by Holman's health. And so he had to side with the progressives in terms of shooting down this new state law because it was too similar to the Texas law. But then he had his own concurring opinion where he said that moving forward, the court should essentially change the way it evaluated future state regulations, thus reopening the the door to aggressive incrementalism um, that would effectively reverse the closing or the real constraining of the doorway that we saw in Whole Woman's Health. So this is a very long way of working up to why I was eventually surprised by Dobbs. Because going into Dobbs, I thought the court would kind of pick up the trail that the chief justice had laid out in June Medical Services. But then when I was listening to the oral arguments, it was remarkable to hear how much the conservative justices were fishing around for ways to move really aggressively against Roe. And so that was the really big alarm, that the conservatives were hunting for means of taking big steps. And so from that point on, I really didn't know what the court was going to do and very much saw the possibility that they would reverse Roe, which they did. So that's a very, very long answer to a relatively short question. But I wanted to give that background so that you could kind of see a little bit more of how things were, essentially what the the costs and benefits of maintaining the status quo were, how the chief justice laid out an opportunity to not overrule Roe, but to still allow for aggressive anti-abortion legislation, Mm -hmm. but that the conservative majority, the then now supermajority, was able to really circumvent the chief justice and go their own way. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that in end, John Roberts was an unnecessary vote regardless. Yeah. To end, his, you know, he writes a, you know, a separate opinion in um, the Dobbs case, where, which is, which makes total sense, read in light of June Medical Services, where he essentially tells his conservative colleagues that they went too far. Like you can see him there saying, that they really needed to pay much more attention to the legitimacy of the uh, of the court that that is put into question because of overruling Roe. That he gave them this option to not go this far, but they broke away and are doing their own things because they have the numbers and the, and as you said, they don't need the chief justice's vote anymore. So you've gone, I think, where I was heading with this question, which is incrementalism versus just a wholesale investment in the Supreme Court as being the answer. And I I don't know if this is hindsight, so I want to follow this a little bit, is that I have this feeling that the, you know, the entire abortion story and, you know, if Roe would stand, really hinged on the ideology of the majority of the justices. So, you know, that once a critical mass of conservative justices made up the bench, so that would be five, that abortion was then in serious jeopardy. And that all of these lesser strategies that, you know, this incrementalism that we saw at the lower court level and at the state level that had been employed along the way was ultimately just a wasted effort. But I do wonder if that steady chipping away of abortion rights in lower courts essentially weakened the overall abortion legal infrastructure in the United States in such a meaningful way that it gave the Supreme Court a plausible avenue to pursue in what would become wholesale dismantling of abortion protection. And I'm wondering if there's a way that these two things can exist and did need each other. Yeah, no, I, I definitely wouldn't say that incrementalism was wasted. And I would definitely also say that these are all mutually reinforcing strategies. Mm-hmm. So kind of the way that you originally started to, to position this was that there's this idea of investing in incrementalism versus investing in reconstituting the Supreme Court. Right. But those, those aren't two different ends. They're, again, mutually re- reinforcing because as you reconstruct the federal bench to create a friendlier audience for anti-abortion regulation, you're increasing your opportunities in incrementalism, right? And yes, the end vision here, right, for anti-abortion groups was to, to overturn Roe, but I think it was seen as a really, a big long shot, right? And that, and that there was a lot of potential in incrementalism, especially as you make the court friendlier and friendlier, is that you can have, you know, they could have really hollowed out Roe. And this is really even what I thought they would do 
after the Dobbs oral argument is I thought they would so hollow out Roe that Roe would wouldn't be overtly overturned, but it would be so thin that you know it was effectively uh, dispensed with. And you know, but I, they, again, they didn't even go there. Right? They went with the overt overturning of Roe. So, so one way of thinking about the court and the composition of the court is, you know, it, it enabled incrementalism that could have been a road that they could have continued to go down. Another one is, is what you were suggesting that I agree with is incrementalism allowed for a steady, consistent chipping away at abortion. And, and it was a process that was really controlled by the anti-abortion movement itself. Mm-hmm. So they got to hone what messages worked for them. And they got to keep the idea in front of the public for decades that there were problems with Roe. And this gets to a, a larger point that I, I make in you know, classes that I teach on abortion and so forth, is how modern abortion politics had to be created. It was an intentional and prolonged process of making abortion into a political issue and then making abortion into a political issue that had a broad audience and then also making it into a political issue that resonated deeply with people. Mm-hmm. And incrementalism was all part of that process of making abortion matter to conservatives, making it matter to the GOP. And so I really don't think you get to Dobbs without incrementalism as being a part of building the anti-abortion movement and having it occupy such a significant space within the GOP. It became the way that conservatives talked about the court and got the GOP to care about the court in these ways, which then also produced the justices that eventually overturn the case. And so so they're really not in opposition to one another, but all part of a longer, complex process. There's almost uh, two things happening that I think there's, there is a tension between. One is, so first, we've had a court that was uh, majority conservative in the past handful of decades. You know, the overturning of Roe just never seemed plausible, right? So it's, there's something about this moment in time with these justices where it became plausible and still, and this is the tension I'm talking about, is people were shocked. Yeah. Right? So there's a few different ways to talk about this. One is to kind of pick up, uh, this is a thread from your last question that I, that I didn't pick up uh, directly, but is, is this idea of the beliefs and the policy preferences of the justices themselves. And like, yes, you had a, you can even do the comparison of the conservative majority that existed on the court with June Medical Services just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. But even though there was a conservative majority, the chief justice sided with striking down an anti-abortion law because he saw other values in play. He saw the need to protect court legitimacy and how if he would have overturned whole women's health from just a few years prior, they would have faced a backlash of exactly this criticism, that it's just the policy preferences of the justices that drive the outcomes. And thus, there's nothing special about law. And there's nothing special about the court versus the legislature. And that would be damaging to the image of the court, right? And so the chief justice recognized that. And even though he has a kind of demonstrable anti-abortion policy preference, his interest in the court as an institution overrode that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until we get Justice Amy Coney Barrett on the bench that you get a supermajority that apparently has different interests in mind, right? Their policy preference around abortion outweighed their concerns around legitimacy. And part of the way that I think about that is we also now have a court staffed with conservative justices who are all part of the conservative assent within the GOP and the GOP really coming to care about the judiciary as an institution. And so you can kind of track out the justices over the course of the rise of conservatism and the attention to the court and the the rise of abortion as an issue. And so 
one of the ways that, that I like to talk about how the justices who overturned Roe would address the uh, and do address for their satisfaction the legitimacy question is by saying that Roe was illegitimate, and so that by striking down Roe, they're restoring the legitimacy mm-hmm. of the court as opposed to harming the legitimacy of the court. And that mindset, that argument, is one that only comes after decades of talking about Roe and talking about abortion in highly political ways, and so that it occupies a massive space in conservative thinking, right? And so so we see that the justice's ideology matters, and that earlier instances, you know, we can look at Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, right, who was appointed with the assumption that she was an anti-abortion justice and in many ways she was, but she also orchestrated the saving of Rose core holding in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, because I would argue, one, seeing other values, and two, also not having been kind of coming to adulthood in the same political environment that, say, Amy Coney Barrett came to adulthood in. Right. And so even though you have a conservative majority in the past, it's a different kind of conservative majority with a different political history than the conservative majority that we have now. So the, the end of your question was about, you know, we've, we had all these conservatives on the court, but yet people were still shocked. Mm-hmm. I want to speak to that like shock element. And, you know, I gave you my reasons why Dobbs, you know, in many ways was a surprising opinion. But if I change hats and I think about the public and I think about Democratic voters, there's an important point to make here, which is that Democrats have for a long time, Democratic voters and public opinion polling data shows us that uh, Democrats have long been in favor of protecting Roe and protecting abortion rights. But if you look at their prioritization of abortion, it was always kind of a mid-level priority. Mm -hmm. It was never at the front of things. You know, kinds of ebbs and flows a bit, but it's never at the at the lead. And I'd argue the reason why is because there was always row there and a court there to be a guardrail against the most aggressive anti-abortion legislation, right? So they didn't need to invest as much into it politically. But then with Trump's election, and with Trump becoming the president, you watch abortion begin to increase in Democratic prioritization, Democratic Party prioritization. And then it really spikes with the appointment of Justice Kavanaugh. That's when you get this conservative majority that looks like it's going to be in place to overturn Roe versus Wade. And then you see abortion just leap ahead in the priorities of both Democratic voters and Democratic politicians. And of course, just a couple of years later, you get Dobbs. But think about that in comparison to conservatives. Conservatives have long been mobilized around abortion, and social conservatives have long highly prioritized abortion in a way that Democrats haven't. And so in some ways, this is Dobbs was surprising for so many people because it only started to rise in priority relatively recently. And so if you kind of think of only tuning in two years prior when you have decades prior of being kind of half invested, that's a massive change in a very short period of time. And really, if you look at it in terms of people that are paying even closer attention, Whole Woman's Health decided in 2016 is, at the time, an amazing abortion rights decision that really looks to damage the anti-abortion movement and remove their incrementalist, their primary incrementalist strategies. And if you go back and look at interviews with anti-abortion activists in the days after Holman's Health, they're scrambling. They don't know where they're going to go next. Couple with that, the assumption at the time that Hillary Clinton is going to win the presidency mm-hmm. and then be able to appoint a justice right out of the gate to replace Justice Scalia's empty seat, right? It's a totally different abortion politics future. That's an abortion politics future where abortion gets even more well protected. So if you look at, you go from that in 2016 to this ruling in 2022, that's a lot of whiplash and massive changing in a relatively short period of time. And so it's understandably seen as as surprising and shocking. 
And I think, I mean, you are hitting on something that, you know, maybe another way to frame this is it's not just that there was a status quo that changed. There was also conventional wisdom that suggested that that status quo was, there was no way it was going to change. And if, and maybe even more so was going to be strengthened in the near future. Yeah. And, and think about this too, of even the ways that those conservative justices talked about abortion in their confirmation hearings as settled law, Mm -hmm. right? They're feeding that, you know, disingenuously, but feeding that idea that it is recognized now after decades as being a fundamental right, and thus they can erode it, but they wouldn't remove it. Mm -hmm. And so that, that there were all sorts of features reinforcing the idea that Roe was safe. And then throw into that, you know, June Medical Services, like, okay, the Chief Justice switched his vote in order to um, side with precedent in whole women's health, albeit creating a very large opportunity to reopen the incremental politics of abortion, but still not going after Roe directly. There could have even, you know, been some thinking going into Dobbs that his argument should have some sway with conservative justices, especially going back to oral arguments again, the progressive justices were hammering home, pushing really hard on the threat to the court's legitimacy and the threat to the legitimacy of law that overturning Roe would have, right? We have these remarkable statements about how will the court survive the stench of overruling Roe mm-hmm. and talking about the death of the institution, right? They were really leveraging strong arguments to try to get the conservatives to recognize the legitimacy concerns here. But again, it didn't land except for with the chief justice. Mm-hmm. And so that's another reason to think like, even though people saw Roe as being at risk, there were all sorts of reasons to think that it might not be overturned directly. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we're still in early days. So, and I've said this before, but I don't know that we can, you know, with a straight face, call this the Roberts court anymore. I think this yeah. is like the Scalia court, maybe. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, the Alito court. And if that's the case, then I don't think legitimacy ranks particularly high right now. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think it does. So there's, maybe I should backtrack on that slightly and say that, you know, one thing that I was saying before was that how conservatives like Thomas and Alito and, you know, the the argument that they made in that opinion was they're restoring the legitimacy of the court. And that's going to resonate with everybody in the conservative movement who's been attacking the court for decades and using Roe versus Wade as evidence number one of where the court went awry, right? Mm -hmm. There's a belief that they can hold on to that they're improving the legitimacy of the court. You know, that, of course, runs counter to the way that we see a lot of people responding to the court. But But I agree with you that I wouldn't call this necessarily the, it's gonna, it's, yeah, we have to wait to see if Roberts really has control over this court, or if Thomas has control over this court, or Alito has control over this court. Mm -hmm. And you see that tension playing out in Dobbs, right? Alito is writing the majority opinion. Uh, He's going after abortion aggressively, realizing everything that we can see in his career prior to this. Like a point to bring up is he was on the, the, the circuit court that heard the Casey opinion before the Supreme Court, you or heard the Casey case before the Supreme Court and uh, Sandra Day O'Connor led the court to preserving Roe in Casey. He wrote to completely allow everything in the Pennsylvania law to stand, right? That's a big sign of where he fell uh, in relation to abortion. So it's no surprise that he's the one writing this opinion in the end. But what he is careful to do is to say, He's only writing this opinion insofar as it relates to abortion politics, and that we shouldn't necessarily use this to go after other substantive due process rights. Mm-hmm. You got Roberts on his left saying, we could have let this law stand without overturning Roe directly if you would have just picked up my lead in June Medical Services. But then importantly, you have Justice Thomas standing to Alito's right saying, great, we got abortion out of the way. Now let's use the same legal arguments that we use to get abortion out of the way to start going after gay marriage and a bunch Mm -hmm. of other things, right? So what you see in the Dobbs conservative opinions 
is the fight for control of this court and what this conservative supermajority will do as its agenda moving forward. And that's a really big question. Yeah. And you're seeing that play out in public too. I mean, they're not being particularly reserved. Thomas and Alito clearly are staking out a position to the far right of Roberts. Mm -hmm. But I also think this could be the year where we see what that coalition looks like. Yeah, no, definitely. The Dobbs decision pulled back the curtain on the internal fights within the court, both between the progressives and the conservatives, which you can see in that dissent. Mm -hmm. That is not a happy building to work within. No. There are some serious tensions there. They need to stop saying we're all friends. They just, I, just, I don't think it, it, it doesn't fly with people. Yeah, nobody, that's, it's becoming less and less believable. No shared Christmas parties. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's now going to become the uh, Christmas party farce, like the family reunion where there's just deep tensions. Awkward <laughs> <Right>? family photos. <laughs> yes, exactly. But the, the, other, the other big side of this is I totally agree with you that a curtain's been pulled back on the tensions within the conservative majority on the court. And you're exactly right that like this year and the coming terms are going to be a revelation as that majority figures out how aggressively it wants to move on conservative policy preferences. Mm -hmm. One of the things that came to mind earlier that I want to get back to is this, this issue of legitimacy is we tend to think about the court's legitimacy as being put at risk, you know, with, with decisions that are really out of step with public opinion. But the way that we tend to think about this is in terms of the court creating new rights that will anger groups of people who can then push back by defying the court, right? And so we can see all sorts of examples of this over the rights revolution, right? Court says desegregate, then the, of course, the executive and the legislative member, uh, legislative branches back this, but what do those that don't want to desegregate do? They refuse, right? Mm-hmm. Until you get threats in the form of the National Guard and, and threats in the form of federal funding. You can see the same thing with school prayer, right? Those that wanted to defy the new right that strikes down school prayer defy that new right. And we continue to see that up until exactly actually a week or so proximate to the Dobbs decision, there is right. a, a public official prayer case, right? But the point is, right, in these, the way that we tend as political scientists to have talked about legitimacy and pushback is when the court is creating new rights. And when you create new rights, there's ways of defying those new rights. What the court is doing here and what we can stand to see it doing elsewhere is it's not creating a new right, but it's removing one mm-hmm. and then saying this is now a political issue. There are very few like tangible ways to resist that. Right. Right. And so there's less of a means. People can be angry at the court, but it's hard to now challenge that court's authority by defying it. Right. So this is another one of these questions about legitimacy is is a lot of the usual political science kind of arguments about legitimacy don't work as well in the conservative agenda, which is to roll back rights protections as opposed to creating new rights protections. Right. Another reason, the thing that I want to stress about what you said of like, the importance of the coming year and years is, A, they need to decide what cases they're going to hear that'll allow them to dismantle more rights. And then B, how do they want to go about that? Do they want to be as aggressive as they were in Dobbs or do they want to pursue other other avenues that are more kind of classic Roberts style, which is to make big moves that don't look like big moves? Mm-hmm. This is something I've thought about as well. And while this is obviously not something that I'm advocating, but this decision really does put like pro-choice activists in an awkward – this would be very different if by some measure, in some way, uh, there was a nationwide ban on abortion because then there's something to resist, right? Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Like you're, you're exactly right. That, that would give something to directly fight. But, it, but in another way, abortion rights activists, what this becomes now – abortion politics has always been – about state politics. As much as we talk about it as national and federal, it's federal insofar as federal courts weigh in and Roe was about a constitutional right. But the real politics of abortion always took place at the state level. Mm-hmm. That's where, you know, you got all this experimentation of conservative activists approaching friendly state legislatures to pass new laws 
that, that could then be tested in court in this incrementalist strategy. But the abortion rights activists were always at a, a weird disadvantage in that politics of abortion because they had already won the right, right? They already won Roe. So it's hard to launch a, a legislative agenda. But so what they primarily did was respond to what anti-abortion activists were doing and try to strike those things down. In the post-Dobbs world, they can now go on the offensive. They go on the offensive because A, Democratic voters care about abortion in a way they never have before. And so that provides a motivation for Democratic politicians to legislate. B, there is a threat of banning abortion. And if your neighboring states are doing that, you can take measures to protect abortion overtly in your state so that you can become an abortion destination, a safe haven, right? So we see this with California and Colorado and so forth. And then B, there's going to be all these fights going on in more conservative states around how far they're willing to go. And that's a whole new question, by the way, for Republicans now in the post-Dobbs world than it was in the pre-Dobbs world, because now there's actual real political risk for them in a way that didn't exist when Roe stood. So abortion rights activists have multiple strategies and multiple fights to pursue in all of the states now. Um, so there's, in, in, in a kind of perverse way, they have more political opportunity to go on the offensive. But I say that's perverse because they only have the opportunity to go on the offensive now because their primary victory has been taken away from them. Mm -hmm. So this is actually a question I did have for you. So let's just follow that line, which is that leading up to the midterm election, Democrats really hammered their Republican opponents on the abortion question. And, you know, as a result, the Republican Party on the issue of messaging, you know, recommended to their candidates to downplay their strongest opposition to abortion. And they did. Mm -hmm. But I guess I wonder how genuine that was, because at the same time, you know, a couple of months ago, Senator Lindsey Graham floated some legislation that would be, in effect, a nationwide abortion ban, which, if so, gets at this ability to provide something for like clear resistance nationwide, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that Republicans have an appetite for a nationwide ban? No. Uh, my guess is no. The future is the future. But mm -hmm. we're getting real data in real time, right, over since Dobbs. So one thing to look at is there was a real shot across the Republican bow was in a special election in Kansas, where the issue was removing kind of state constitutional protection for abortion in Kansas, which is a conservative state. And in a special election where that should mobilize conservatives, the Kansas population rejected the idea. They stood with protecting abortion rights. So that was kind of shot number one of Dobbs is mobilizing voters in new ways. And then going into the election this week, right, the popular wisdom was, hey, look, we can look at polling data. Right after the Dobbs decision, we see abortion as being a, a very high priority for voters, really invigorates Democrats. But months later, when we actually get to the election, it's all about inflation and crime. Mm -hmm. And abortion appears to have moved into the background. But again, we get another chunk of data that comes out of Tuesday. And it shows us that actually abortion resonated, right? That And really, abortion rights activists did well in the election, right? And so that's another shot across the Republican bow that shows them. And then I could point at something like a place like Kentucky, where we think of Kentucky as a conservative state, you know, Democratic governor still. But we think of Kentucky as being a conservative state. They had another constitutional amendment that was put to, to popular vote that would have banned the ability to use the state constitution to protect abortion rights. And voters rejected that. And they, which is to say, right, the double negative here, they, they protected abortion rights in mm -hmm. their state at the same time that they reelected Rand Paul. Yeah. They split their tickets. Yeah. For sure. And that's remarkable. Yeah. So what that is showing me, and I'm assuming is showing the Republican Party, and then you look at that also on the backdrop of National opinion polling on abortion has been incredibly constant for decades, and it consistently shows that a majority of voters did not want to see Roe overturned and don't want to see abortion access banned altogether. And so when you combine these early outcomes around 
abortion politics in the post-Dobbs world, with that longstanding national polling data, it shows that moving nationally, Republicans moving nationally to ban abortion is a very fraught, politically risky move. Mm-hmm. I would be, again, things can change, but in the immediate, I would be surprised to see them trying to highlight abortion politics and trying to move against or move to regulating and banning abortion aggressively at the national level. The state level game is a different one because there it really matters. You can look at really wide variations and and some of the most significant variables that predict anti-abortion legislation are things like, do Republicans control the legislature? What's the public opinion polling data look like in that state on abortion politics? And what's the religiosity of uh, the constituents in those states? And you can begin, actually, literally was having my students today do predictions around different states and how they're going to behave using some of these variables. And you can see wide variation between states. And so there's, so that's a long way of answering that at the national level, I don't think there's going to be an appetite, but at the state level, that's going to vary state by state. You know what we don't really, or we haven't really seen yet though, is a direct line between an anti-abortion position from a candidate and punishment from voters. Yeah. There's some anecdotal suggestion, you know, with some some candidates lost that were very anti-abortion, but they were also election deniers. And, um, you know, there was nothing like what happened in Kentucky where, I mean, maybe it would be more clear if the ballot measure had stood as it did, but then Rand Paul was in trouble as well. Yeah. He's not pro-choice. So I wonder, you know, until we have that kind of data... Mm-hmm. that there is a clear punishment for actually holding an anti-abortion position. I agree with you. Like, nobody drew a direct penalty for having an anti-abortion position. But there's only so much that actors have done since Dobbs. Right. That's one thing, right? And the other is... So, so what, I'm, what I mean by that is it's going to take some work. It's basically in the abortion advocate or the abortion rights kind of proponent's mind who's the institution to be and who's who are the actors to be angry at about Dobbs? The Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court's not on the ballot. And so yes, you can make longer arguments about the Senate and votes on confirmations for judges, etc. But that's that's a that's a harder sell, right? That takes a lot more work. So we can we can tie specific politicians to specific abortion actions in kind of indirect ways. So I'd say that about this election. Mm-hmm. The second one is thinking about that in relation to all the other information that I just said about like public opinion polling data and all these other things is if I am a Republican strategist, I don't see the upside here. Because if I ask Republican legislative members, senators and house members to vote on banning abortion, I'm now directly tying that future candidate to potentially a, a anti-abortion vote, uh, an abortion ban vote, that'll come to matter in the next election, mm-hmm. right? So I think, again, at the, at the national level, it doesn't make a lot of sense to tie yourself as a Republican to an anti-abortion position. Then again, right, they could do the calculation differently. Who knows how they'll behave in the coming years? But at this point in time, that's kind of the rational reading that I would give it. I mean, there's another direction that punishment can come from as well, which is part of the reason that we got where we are is because there was kind of a tipping of a hat to the base on the abortion issue, right? Mm-hmm. And now um, Republicans are are learning that this is perhaps a bit toxic if you go to extreme. And yeah. so they're tacking to the middle. But I wonder if there's punishment from the base then as a result. My hunch is no, because you got the biggest ticket on your item, like on your item list, right? You got rid of Roe. So yes, now there's still things to fight for as an anti-abortion activist, right? You can fight for bans at the national level and at the state level. Mm-hmm. And we might see frustration with this uh, later, kind of in, in ways similar to what we see in the early years of, kind of the 1980s with Christian right frustration with Republican actors not moving strongly enough on abortion. You know, we might see something similar to that, but I don't think you necessarily pay the upside or the risk aversion of upsetting those voters. Again, this is going to vary state by state. 
right? But at a national level, the threat of upsetting deep anti-abortion voters is overshadowed by the threat of mobilizing voters in the in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Who could be pushed to the Democrats because of this issue. Now there still is a question here about how much does this how much does abortion matter to voters? Because like it's one thing to say that public opinion polling data has shown consistently that a majority of Americans don't want to see Roe overturned and they don't want to see abortion banned. It's another thing to say that they prioritize that so highly that it'll become the motivating issue in their voting. That still stands to be seen. And I think data shows, right, like you said, about no specific candidate paid a price here. Like we might think about the Georgia governor's race or something along those lines. But uh, I don't think abortion, protecting abortion access is the strongest motivator for voters but it still does matter. And then the risk of alienating strong anti-abortion voters by failing to act to ban abortion at the federal level, I just don't see that as being as big of a risk because you did deliver on overturning Roe. Mm-hmm. Let's move past abortion politics, though. There's a couple of other areas that you do work in that I want to pick your brain about. Well, one of those areas is work in conservatism and political violence. And this is something that I've dedicated a few episodes to. Uh, and as long as I've got you here, I'd like to talk to you about it. Sure. You had a piece in Washington Post in 2021. And in that piece, you talk about or you make an argument that you refute the argument that once Trump has been exercised from politics and specifically Republican politics, that the country can return to some sense of political normalcy. And, and you trace the numerous ways that conservatism in the United States has for decades, if not since the revolution, contributed to rhetorical and sometimes physical political violence. And there's a lot that I would like to dig into, but primarily, I guess, you know, I'm wondering if this is true, then it's actually a much bigger and more pervasive and more entrenched problem than just, you know, one man. And here, you know, it's often credit is given to Trump for that. And one thing that I, I want to do on this podcast is move beyond like platitudes that simply won't happen. So like often what we hear from folks is, well, we need more bipartisanship or we need more moderate Republicans to run. I want to just make the assumption that that's not going to happen. So I guess the question really is then, what is the solution or is there a solution? And, you know, if there isn't, and given that this is such a historical component of our politics, do we just need to live with it? (laughs) This is a really difficult question. I'll be honest, like, you know, conversations with colleagues, I don't think anybody's had a good answer to how you change course here. So so in that piece, right, like, what what I'm trying to point at there is how the rise of conservatism rode on the back of mobilizing racist language and mobilizing a very aggressive form of a conception of a threat to the national identity and a a corresponding need to aggressively respond back to that. Things that aren't in there, but I think matters, you know, like the trends towards negative partisanship, where people increasingly vote you know, straight party tickets, not because they love their party, but because they genuinely fear the opponent's party. Mm -hmm. These are all trends that we can see in modern politics as building. But then, you know, what Trump did that's, you know, somewhat unique here is being such a prominent national figure who, instead of using coded language, kind of alluding to these things, just said them straight out. There's a, a defining feature of the Trump presidency. It's the lack of restraint. And so, and then we end up with, you know, the, the capital insurrection and so forth. Mm-hmm. How do you ratchet things down? You know, one of the most dispiriting early data points in this whole process, once Trump was elected, was how quickly Republicans moved from questioning Trump or opposing Trump to falling in line and emulating mm-hmm. Trump. Mm -hmm. Like you can see multiple examples of that. And it's really hard to see what derails that. And uh, I don't have any good answers here. Because even if you get rid of Trump, even if Trump runs and loses again, it's created, or he's created a a very, a certain track in the party that the party has been following. So really, there just have to be like the Republican Party just needs to lose a lot of elections 
Mm-hmm. This is like the only way that I can see this is they need to lose a lot of elections to basically have the pain of being associated with kind of a Trump style of politics. Mm-hmm. Then the next question would be, do they stand to lose those elections? And it's that's questionable. Right? Yeah, no, like I don't think these narrow losses do it either. No, no. They need really a lot of losses and by significant margins and that are surprises and so forth. Even watching the the race here in Colorado around whether Bobert will be displaced or mm-hmm. not, right? That that's that'll just be one and last I heard this morning, she was actually ahead now. But were she to lose, that's one loss. That's not the kind of thing that changes the course of the party. Yeah. And it has to be I mean because also Cawthorn lost as well. Um, but nobody's talking about that anymore. So it it can't just be a drip one at a time. Yeah. There needs to be something that makes the Republican Party have a full-scale, top-down reassessment, right? They need to, for lack of a better term, right, there there would need to be some sort of feeling of existential threat that would prompt them to to fundamentally try to change the way the party is going. And mm. At present, that existential threat is not materializing. A final question. So what's something interesting you've been reading, watching, listening to, or doing lately? And it doesn't have to be related to this topic. Okay. So I guess the very first thing that pops into mind, just because it happened this week, so I'm in a, I'm in a book club, and uh, we decided to have a classics month mm-hmm. and went through a whole process of like ranked order voting uh, to figure it out. And what ended up winning was... Uh, in Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Oh, yeah. And man, I have never read that book before. And that is kind of an uh, amazing book to talk about. Deeply interesting on so many levels. I would say too, right, in the course of most book clubs, say if we usually meet for two hours, you're lucky to have an hour of conversation about the book. Mm-hmm. The other hours about God knows what else. We went for like three hours and never deviated from the book. And if anybody ever tried to deviate, it got immediately back to the book. And so that's the most interesting thing that I've kind of read with in the immediate. Like that book club meeting was on Wednesday night. So that's fresh in the mind still. Do you know, when I was at DU, when I was teaching at DU, I assigned that book in one of my classes. Really? Did you have a death penalty class? I had a constitutional law class. So I had them read that along with, and this was just so brutal for them. It was, yeah, In Cold Blood and then The Executioner Song. But it's like a thousand pages. <laughs> so like, and that came right after um, I had gotten some reviews that said like, he actually doesn't make us read that much. Yeah. And then the next the next quarter, they're reading like a uh, In Cold Blood in a thousand page book. Yeah. There's so many interesting things in that book. But like one of the smaller points, so there's a whole bunch of lawyers in this book club too. But uh, it was just talking about how you get this glimpse into the beginnings or kind of the middle of the rights revolution there in the latter parts of that book where they're talking about fighting the death penalty and the lawyers who are volunteering to do this and what motivates them and stuff like that's one of the many many interesting things in that book is getting that little like at the moment time capsule of that actually happening on the ground mm-hmm. so yeah no i could i could see assigning that book the original book that won the the rank order voting was the count of monte cristo and this oh, really i had never i've never picked up that book before but when it won, somebody that went out and got it, they're like, oh my God, do you realize how long this book is? And it is particularly funny because Don Quixote and some other things got rejected from being allowed on the list because they were too long already. And so mm. nobody bothered <laughs> to look up how long The Count of Monte Cristo was. So it made it and then won. But then we punted it for a month in favor of In Cold Blood because nobody thought they could ever read that long of a book in just one month. One of my friends just read that, though, and she loved it. She said it was a surprisingly good book. So I'm like a quarter of the way through it, and it's like, A, it is all over the place. Really? B, around 20% of the way through the book, two things. One, he's like the 1800s version of Batman. He's got like a, an actual cave <laughs> that's decked out lavishly, and he has like a butler servant, and it's like, yeah, this is 1800s Batman. Uh, the huh. other, there's like an entire chapter about he and this guy being high on hash. It's like, wait, what's going on? Like, well, he can do that in California now. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's it's definitely like, like I said, I'm about 25 percent of the way through, and I'm like, where is this thing going? Like, I'm only a quarter of the way through, and it's essentially been like four separate stories by now. 
So, I don't know if that's an endorsement, but I'm thinking maybe I should read it. It's it's a trip. Like I never would have picked it up on my own, but for the book club. And even when the book club picked it, I was like, this was not one of the things I voted for. But as I was like, one guy spoke out so strongly in favor of it. I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. And now I'm just like, I'm reading it for the sheer not knowing where the hell it's where is it go going. <laughs> so, well, hey, at least there's a hook. Yeah, and it makes me like it's like a Dickens. Like Dickens, just you know, both Dickens and in this book, the author will spend like ten pages to flesh out a character who has about a two second role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, it's a real crazy experience in universe building and uh, lack of being linear. Dr. Wilson, thanks for being here. I really appreciate the conversation. No, thanks for having me. It was, it was a fun way to spend an afternoon. I appreciate it. I want to say something more about the abortion ballot measures that have come before voters in numerous states since the Dobbs decision, all coming out on the pro-choice side. I think we're learning something interesting here with ballot measures, not just abortion, because we're also seeing an interesting trend in other policy areas. Marijuana policy comes to mind. But to use the abortion measures as an example, when we peel abortion away from a party or a candidate and we ask people directly, irrespective of their party or their ideology, about their preferences, we see that people are more discerning than it looks when we try to ascertain their preferences simply by the candidate they support, that their policy preferences might be getting subsumed or lost in this calculus. We assume that somebody is anti-abortion if they vote for a Republican candidate, and conversely, that they are pro-choice if they vote for a Democrat. But we assume this because the parties have a general platform that is a basket of policy preferences and positions. And so if we support that candidate, then the thinking goes that we must support all of the policy preferences and positions in that basket. The Republican Party is anti-abortion, and the Democratic Party is pro-choice, so your vote for a candidate is construed as support for that policy. But we're seeing something interesting with these ballot measure outcomes. You know, given the opportunity to vote on an issue independent of a party or a candidate, at least on abortion, and again, maybe marijuana, voters seem to be teasing out some nuance. As I discussed with Dr. Wilson, Kentucky is a fascinating example where people could vote for a candidate and for their position on abortion separately. And given that opportunity, voters chose a Republican candidate for Senate, Rand Paul, who holds anti-abortion views, while at the same time voting for the pro-choice position on the ballot measure. What this probably means is that voters generally like the basket of policy preferences that come with Rand Paul, but not his abortion position. So, This might seem obvious, but in a political environment in which we all pigeonhole each other, castigate, and demonize each other, this is evidence that your Republican neighbor may not be a medieval crusader trying to force unwanted pregnancies onto the entire population. And it's a strong suggestion that our current party system is disenfranchising us, the voters. We simply cannot pursue nuanced policy with such a strong, rigid, demanding two-party infrastructure in the United States. And further, I guess I'm wondering if there's an argument here that beyond the passive implications, our party system is doing active damage to democratic governance in that it forces us to prioritize policy preferences that means we sometimes lose on or have to sacrifice some personal policy outcome preferences because we're forced to take the entire platform, the entire basket of goods with the candidate. It makes me think that this is a good argument for more direct democracy in the United States more direct input from the people. Parties have too much control over our preferences, changing the intended direction of electoral relationships. They tell us what we have to believe, what we have to accept, and what we have to sacrifice, instead of allowing us, the voters, to tell them what we expect and what we want. Imagine how that might change some of our relations with people that might vote differently from us. If it turns out that preferences on some of the issues most important to us are actually similar, and that we could vote our candidate preference, which might differ, and also our policy preference, which might be shared. The two-party system denies us that. Increased use of ballot measures might be one move in the direction of more equitably balancing that relationship. And I mean, really, could bring the temperature down in our relations with people across the political divide. All right, 
Check back next Friday and every Friday for a new episode of Deep Dive. Chat soon, folks.